if we judge and we assume our child is just being difficult for the sake of being difficult, I think we're missing a big point. They engage in things because they're drawn to them. And if we shift our assumptions about what we think our child is about and we kind of follow their lead, they'll, they'll show us what they're about. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and boy, do I have a powerful episode for you today. We are going to be talking about the experience of today's kids and teens and what's different for them from when we were their age, and consequently, what has to be different for us as their parents and caregivers. Because as my guest, Dr. John Duffy explains, we truly can't relate to the lives our kids are leading because they're facing many more stressors than we ever faced just by virtue of the pace of their lives, their access to technology, their connectivity to each other, and the technology at their fingertips. John is the author of the brand new book, Parenting the New Teen in the Age of Anxiety, a book which, by the way, I devoured. And What I loved about this book and about the work John is doing is that he's helping parents like us know how to truly show up in the way our kids need us to, how to be the support they need, how to tune into their emotional lives, how to create a culture of emotional wellness in our homes, and so much more. This is a really thoughtful conversation with a lot of takeaways. And even though John's book is aimed more at parents of teens, Everything we talk about is germane to parents with kids of any age. And as we all know, all kids grow up. So hearing what John has to share can help you be better prepared when your children enter adolescence. Before I get to our conversation, I have a few quick announcements. First, there are several new supporters of this podcast that I want to give a shout out to. So a special thank you to Cecilia McMullian, Monica Croak, and Amy Kendall. Thank you for being a part of this community and for helping support the production costs for this show. I am so grateful for your help. And if you too get a lot out of Tilt Parenting and would like to make a small monthly contribution to help fund the show, it's easy to do. Just go to patreon.com slash Tilt Parenting and sign up. You can pledge 10, 5, or even $2 a month. It all helps. Again, that's patreon.com slash tilt parenting. Okay, so that's enough of the announcements. Here is my conversation with Dr. John Duffy. Hey, John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Debbie. It's good to be here. It is good to have you here. You know, I just finished reading your book. I really enjoyed it. I think it's obviously super timely for what our teenagers are experiencing today. And it was really eye opening for me. So I'm I'm excited to share this with my listeners who, as you know, are parents raising neurologically atypical kids. So probably kids that even more than your average teen are dealing with anxiety. So As a way to get into this, I always like guests to just take a few minutes to introduce themselves. And within that, could you tell us about why you took on this book and and why you wanted to write it? Oh, I would be happy to. Thank you. So I am a clinical psychologist up here in Chicago, and um, I've been practicing for about 25 years. And I honestly never 
if I'm being completely transparent, never really intended to work with teenagers. My plan was to work with high functioning adults, nice and easy practice. Um, and my first, uh, when I opened my practice, my first referral resource was a social worker at a high school. And, um, and then my second was, and my third was, and I realized, boy, I really love these kids. Uh, they, they've got a remarkable strengths that often go untapped. And um, even when they are depressed or at their worst, or when they're super anxious or angry or uh, defiant, there's still some spirit there that I really love and admire. Um, so I've enjoyed my entire career working with them. About eight years ago, I thought, oh, you know what? I want to write a book that's a little guide to parents just based on what I see in session. And that was called The Available Parent. Um, really proud of that book. And that was really about parenting free as we can of our own fear, our own judgment and our own ego. And really, I kind of left it at that. Like, if you can do that and stay in that lane, then you're available to your kids in the way they need you to be. And you're fine. So that came out in 2011. And in the last eight years since then, maybe four or five years, there's been such a dramatic shift in the landscape of adolescence to the point where I think the talks we were saving for 12 or 13, we now have to have at eight or nine. Um, adolescence now stretches in my mind to the early 20s because a lot of the challenges of adolescence, we have trouble meeting because of what, what I call in the book identity traffic and, and a few other factors um, that, that plague the late adolescent. And, um, and I do think that these kids are dealing with a whole new set of stressors that no other group of teenagers before them has had to deal with. And even the stressors we dealt with when we were kids, they're amplified now in ways that I think a lot of people in my generation, a lot of parents just don't have a good grasp on. And so that's why I wrote this second book, Parenting the New Teen in the Age of Anxiety, to kind of just highlight that for parents. Here's some of the stuff you don't know. Here's some things you can do with that. And more stuff is going to come along that you don't know. And so here's a way to talk to your children about that as well as those things rear their heads because some of this stuff is is really scary. And um, I'm struck by um, what we don't know as parents. Well, you know, what you just said in terms of teens dealing with things that we as their parents can't really relate to that, you know, when I started reading the book, that's what really just stayed with me the whole time. You know, many years ago, and in, in a past life, I used to write self help books for teenagers. And mm -hmm. so I thought, well, gosh, I really struggled with the the elementary school years, but once he, my son hits the teen years, I am going to be, you know, good to go because I Absolutely. get these kids, right? <laughs> and I, who, and so I'm in reading your book and you just really paint a picture that really shook me. Like, we really don't have a clue, like, what our kids are really going through the depth of, you know, you talk about their psychic pain, like the, the depth of, what they are experiencing is something we can't relate to. So can you talk a little bit about that? You know, what is it that we're not getting that could really be affecting our kids that we have to wrap our heads around? I'm so glad you focused on the psychic pain piece because there's there's a number of things, you know, um, 
that, that we see our kids doing. They're on YouTube, they're on their phones, they're disengaged somehow, they're up in their rooms. There's these behavioral things that you kind of notice. Um, and, and, and parents can ask questions about that. And I, I kind of talk a lot about those things and the vaping and all this other stuff that's kind of hitting the headlines now. But the psychic pain, that more than anything else is what I want parents to be able to recognize has changed and shifted dramatically in the last few years. And there's a number of reasons in my experience for that. One is that kids are super aware today of the idea of mental illness and mental wellness, mental illness in particular. They know what it means from a very young age to be depressed or anxious or suicidal. They certainly know what ADHD is. They know what the medications for these things are. Kids play de facto therapists for one another via text or Snapchat or Instagram late into the night, a lot of the time, um, unbeknownst to the vast majority of parents. Um, so there's this empathy that I really admire in them that I do not remember having when I was a kid. I think I highlight that in the book. Mm -hmm. um, so, But I think they are taking on emotional challenges that their young minds are entirely unprepared to take on. And that part worries me quite a bit for these kids because whether they're prepared or not, they're, they're taking them on. And, um, and I think they're doing it in a real stealth way that we moms and dads are having a very hard time tracking. And so when our child comes to us with attitude, we assume that's attitude. We assume that's defiance as opposed to the accumulation of all this psychic trouble that they're carrying around. Yeah, and I think about a lot of differently wired kids already, I feel like, tend to move through the world with a heightened sensitivity, you know, often are these kids feel things more profoundly, you know, they experience they might be overly empathetic, or just very sensitive to energies around them and 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 taking it all on. And so, you know, when I was reading that, I was like, wow, these are kids who already are wired to to struggle in this area. But now they're growing up in a society where that is almost, you know, double the impact on them. Absolutely. And, um, and, and they're so much more socially aware, in part because of all the inform information they have access to, which is, in effect, all the information. I mean, you know, now that, that, that you know, they're carrying the internet around in their hands, and a lot of kids are exceptionally well-informed, so if something's going on somewhere on the planet, uh, they're, they're aware if there is suffering happening, and they feel that in a way that I think a lot of us when we were teenagers were kind of blissfully unaware of. You know, there's that idea that those teen years are almost by definition egocentric and we're working on developing a separate identity for ourselves and a sense of confidence and resilience for ourselves. And that's the challenge of those years. Well, kids are working through all that for sure, but they're also taking on, you know, all the world's problems and they're wondering like, Am I ever going to make any impact on any of this? Will I ever have the agency over any of this? Or the awful things that I'm hearing about, am I just kind of stuck with, you know, being kind of enfeebled and disempowered to do anything about that? Will I be able to take care of my family? So they have this kind of like long range view that I think a lot of us had a cushion away from when we were when we were younger. Um, 
Somewhere in the book, I mention the disappearance of the tween. Um, and I, the, the reason I bring that up is that I, I think that, that cushion between childhood and adolescence that, that a lot of us had the luxury of, kids don't have that luxury any longer. You know, they, they move very quickly and abruptly from the innocence of childhood and that lack of self-awareness and that lack of awareness of mental illness or suffering to kind of a pretty hard stop in this awareness like, oh, I think I might be depressed. I don't like the way I look, you know, and this is happening at eight or nine or 10, not 12 or 13 or 14 now. And those young minds are really not very well prepared to take that on. So they get overwhelmed pretty easily. And so also, you know, as you're explaining that, I, I'm thinking about the fact that as parents, we're also getting messages you know, we're reading books about the teenage brain. And, you know, part of being a teenager is taking risks. And, you know, we or we read, you know, I'm a big fan of Julie Lithcott Hames book, How to Raise an Adult. And so oh. that's always in the back of my mind, like, okay, how do I build scaffolding to support this child but give them, you know, that sense of agency. And, you know, so I think many of us are trying to do what those are still kind of old playbooks in some way, if they're not taking into account the levels of anxiety that kids, most kids are kind of moving through the world with. I think you're right. I think that's the trick of parenting today. I love, I love Julie Lithcott-Hames book as well. Um, and, and she spoke at the Todd and Kathy's conference last year and I got to meet her and talk to her about this a little bit. And, um, and she would agree that yes, you know, you want to build that scaffolding, but there are new challenges to that. So there's this little bit of a high wire act in parenting where you want to create some, some degree of safety. You want to keep communication open, but you do have to be informed about the some of the challenges, at least, that your child is facing because a lot of them they're facing without your awareness, in complete silence, in the dark, in their room, or with their friends. And so when they present a certain way to us, we can make easy assumptions that, oh, you're just being obstinate, you're being difficult. Why won't you focus on school? Why won't you sign up for the thing? You know, like, what, why are you making life so difficult? without recognizing, oh, they're already reaching the end of their bandwidth before you even get to them, you know? And so yeah. we have to recognize that as parents and they're not going to tell us every little bit of what's going on in their minds, but they need to know that they can, you know, and that's, that's, that's a, a point I try to make kind of consistently throughout the book is, you know, do not expect that your child's going to be completely transparent with you. That's not a hallmark of the teenage years, but to know that they can be and to know that if you have something you need them to understand about, you know, the world that you get that you think they might not get, you need to establish a lot of goodwill between the two of you in order to make that message heard. Otherwise, they're going to trust what they're reading and hearing and seeing from peers or or online at Reddit or with each other on Snapchat. And is that the emotional bank account that you're talking about there? Exactly. Can you, ex can you explain that to listeners? Yeah, I've, I've uh, for about 20 years, I've been looking for another phrase <laughs> that, that I think that I think suits the, the dynamic between parent and child. And I've come up with nothing more effective than something I read in Daniel Goleman's book, Emotional Intelligence, 22, 23 years ago, the emotional bank account. And effectively, Every one of our relationships carries an emotional bank account, and that's kind of the sum total 
of our interactions and whether they are positive or negative. And if you've got net negative interactions, you've got a bank account that's in the red and your interventions in, in that relationship, whether it's parenting or an intimate relationship or a work relationship or a friendship is going to be far less effective than if you've built up a lot of positive interactions so that you are in the black. And that's the good stuff of parenting is the more you spend time connecting in a genuine way where you're not just collecting intel or looking at portals, but you're talking to your child, you're getting to know his or her world, you're understanding their music a little bit better, you're understanding the culture of their class a little bit better. The more you understand and the more they know that you are curious and interested and still have positive regard for them, that bank account's in the black and the interventions that you execute as a parent are far, far more likely to be effective. And if they're in the red, you are going to find yourself super frustrated because you can read a Debbie Reber book and a John Duffy book and a Julie Lithcock Hames book and still feel like I'm not getting anywhere here. Because there's no trust there. Yes, exactly. So what if there are people listening who are recognizing that this emotional banking account is probably very much in the red? Is it possible to turn things around? And how would you even go about doing that? Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent possible. Um, one of my favorite examples happened in my office recently, a, a mom recognized like, Oh, I get why you don't listen to me. You know, I come down really hard on you. I'm not a very good listener. So she, she copped to all that. She, she said effectively, um, I don't like the way I've been in our relationship. And so, and I apologize for that. And I want to get to know you. I want to understand your world. Um, I don't want to take any risks with your well-being. I love you too much. It's too important. So even if you have really hard things to say to me, I'm going to work harder than I ever have to listen and to be an ally to you as opposed to working against you and you feeling like you can't talk to me. So she kind of hit this really, really elegant reset with her daughter and her daughter responded beautifully and said, I really appreciate that. You know, like, and this is a 16 year old talking to her mother. Um, it was really something to witness, but I learned a lot there because it was like, oh yeah, it isn't too late. You can always come back to it and say, this hasn't gone very well, has it? You know, and if you're, if you're meta about it like that and you're not defensive, I think you can get, I think you can get movement very, very quickly. And the, the, the emotional bank account is super malleable. So you can move from the red to the black in the course of an hour. I watched it happen, you know, um, and it is a lovely thing to see happen. And you get hope very, very quickly. Hmm. Yeah. And that requires a level of vulnerability on the parents part, too. But it, I think our kids, because they are so sensitive, they they are able to tap into that right away. Yes. And a as a cautionary note, it can go the other way, too. Um, you know, I'm thinking of a father and son I worked with not long ago where dad decided to launch into a lecture because he had, you know, his son's attention in a session and you could watch the lights go out in the son's eyes mm -hmm. and I could feel like that bank account draining. And, you know, so I intervened, but, um, left untouched that would have, um, created, I think a lot of frustration and division between them. And there's never been a time when our kids need to know 
that that emotional account, uh, bank account is available and that you are available to them. Um, now more than ever, they need to be aware of that. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body. And so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash tilt for 25% off. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. So what then, you know, you talk about a parent's need to listen, support and understand without judgment. And that's something I'm really working hard on at this moment in my life. And I'm just wondering, I don't know what that looks like. You know, does that mean no matter what they say, we just kind of continue to listen and hold a space for them? You know, maybe you could give us an example if a child is really unloading some emotionally difficult stuff. Like, what does that look like? Yeah. So, okay. So let me, let me think of an example that doesn't uh, present any identifying information. Um, A couple years ago, 
um, I worked with a young man. He was vaping and smoking pot. He was DJing. In other words, like he was trying to rap and DJ in the basement instead of doing homework. Um, he was difficult. And so his parents were angry at him. Um, you know, why aren't you doing your homework? Why are you wasting your time with this nonsense? Um, are you kidding me? You know, like, you know, you, you tell us you want to go to college. You're doing nothing to support that idea. And so there's a lot of judgment that came in. In fairness, if you think about it, that all feels really, really reasonable from a parent's point of view. Um, and I don't know if it's reasonable to say extract all that judgment, but I think it's important to recognize our children aren't just trying to test our acumen as parents. And sometimes I work with parents where they really feel like that's what's at play here. More, they engage in things because those things support their well-being or their self-esteem, and they might not have other areas of their life in which that happens. For this young man in particular, that pot-smoking, juuling, vaping crowd was really, really welcoming to him, and he was struggling to connect socially with anybody else. He had tried out for a team that he did not make, and he thought that was going to be his saving grace and, and his social life, and it turned out not to be. And that that group was super welcoming to him that was just hanging around in the basements. And this making music was kind of a, um, a replacement for him for the athletics. And it, he didn't, it wasn't a full replacement, but he felt decent about himself knowing, oh, I can create something from scratch. It might not be great, but I like the idea of that. So I encourage the parents, well, don't shut that down altogether because do I think he's going to be a DJ or a rapper? Maybe, but probably not. But is there some, is there a seed of something being sown there that is meaningful to him? Um, yes, probably. You know what I mean? There's some creative element that he is drawn to. And if we shut that down, we might be creating more anxiety and more distance than we want to. So that's where taking the judgment away is super important because if we judge and we assume our child is just being difficult for the sake of being difficult, I think we're missing a big point. They engage in things because they're drawn to them. And if we shift our assumptions about what we think our child is about and we kind of follow their lead, they'll, they'll show us what they're about. And one note to parents, you know, there's an awful lot of this stuff where kids are trying to be DJs or, you know, I'm going to be Insta famous or something where parents think like, oh, my gosh, that's so soulless and awful. And I, I so don't want a child who's involved in this. Ask your child what they're drawn to about it. And you'll learn that there's something interesting there. Um, but if you make assumptions, the more and the more assumptions you make, the more off you probably are. Um, I worked with a mom recently and she said um, her daughter came to her 15 year old daughter and said, I'm kind of bummed out um, about Sundays. I hate Sundays. And the mom thought, I'm going to align with her uh, and I'll share that I hate Sundays, too. Oh, I get it, honey. You know, um, that kind of Sunday night blues. You're not looking forward to the week. But she held back and she, she asked her daughter, well, what do you mean? And she said, and she didn't mean that at all. <laughs> her, her take on that was completely different. So if I had gone forward and said, I know exactly what you mean, 
she would have missed everything that her daughter meant. And that that's a great example of, you know, if we think our tool for connecting comes from our mouth, we're probably missing the boat. If we think it comes from our ears, we're getting a little closer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is a great example. I mean, you you like the word curiosity, as do I. And I think that's just such a great reminder to just lead with that, to always be asking why and going deeper and not getting our own baggage enmeshed in what's going on. You know, when you're talking about anxiety in the book, you write that as parents, you know, our anxiety can create more anxiety in them, you know, our concerns about the future, um, the fears that we have for, for who they are. So how do we kind of temper our own knee-jerk reactions, our own fears and anxiety, especially with that kid who's, who, you know, to an outsider or to us might look like they're really failing big time and, and going nowhere? Yep. Um, that's a really, really crucial question because uh, I don't begrudge any parent their anxiety. I think that's uh, kind of the sign of a really good parent who worries about their child, wants their child to be happy and successful. I think that's what we all want for our kids. And so I think in order to manage our own anxiety, it's important to talk to our partners about like our fears and our anxieties, uh, not even in the extreme. I often encourage parents, even when things are going pretty well, stop in and see a therapist on occasion and, and work through your feelings. So somebody who knows parenting pretty well and talk about what your insecurities are, what your fears are, what your anxieties are. The only place I encourage parents not to bring that is to their relationship with their kids, because I want parents to recognize that your, your children are already pretty anxious. You know, just, just by virtue of being their age right now, there is an awful lot of anxiety and coming from a whole bunch of different places in their lives. Most every significant area of their lives carries some degree of anxiety and in a cumulative way, they don't have space to take on yours. So anywhere else that you can share that. And, you know, um, I love there, there's a, there's a group here in town of parents that get together and they just talk about parenting teams. And, um, and I'm, I, I will probably be speaking with them in the next month or so. And I think that's so beautifully adaptive to the times because, it's difficult and it's different to be a parent now than it ever has been. So to talk about like, you know, okay, I found this in my child's inbox or in my child's backpack, or I'm worried about this. You're usually going to get some nods from other parents, you know, that where it's like, yep, me too. You know, like, let's, let's talk about that. You know, like how do we ease our minds or let's brainstorm like, you know, what's the best way to handle this? without adding to the, uh, the anxiety our children are already carrying, but also addressing our concerns. You know, we don't want to be completely disempowered as parents. So I love the idea of parents empowering each other and brainstorming together in this new age, because I feel like in a lot of ways, just like kids are pioneers in that they're the first who have been brought up with social media and some of the academic and social pressures, we parents are also pioneers we're the first to go through and raise people in these circumstances. And I think it's fair to say, you know what? Sometimes I'm going to need a little consultation on this. I don't think I'm always going to be able to do this on my own. And there's nothing wrong with that. I love when parents seek each other out. 
I love that. I, I, I never thought of it that way. But you know, something I'm often telling my child is, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing. Like I've never raised a teenager before this. Is, I'm totally new at this. So yeah, I think that leaning on each other is, is really important. Feel like you're the martyr in your family. You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down. Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a No Guilt Mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model. So that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt free. Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Get Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. Are you overwhelmed by the things that get in the way of you doing what you want to do? Are you looking for ways to simplify life to better align with your values? Do you want to create space in your schedule so you have room for more of the good stuff? Play, joy, relationships, gratitude, and more? If you answered yes to any of these questions, I invite you to check out Edit Your Life, a podcast to help you edit the unnecessary from your life so you have more room to enjoy the awesome. Through episodes with me, Christine Coe, and a range of super smart, compassionate, and thoughtful guests, You'll come away with big picture insights and practical ways to declutter your home, schedule, and mental space without getting bogged down by perfection. I have always believed that small moments and actions matter tremendously. My goal is to help you find agency and space in your life through doable baby steps that will leave you feeling accomplished instead of overwhelmed. Check out Edit Your Life wherever you enjoy your podcasts. So you mentioned the word disempowering in your book, you talk about that there are ways we can both empower and disempower our kids who are struggling with anxiety. So can you give me an example of what each of those would look like? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the most empowering thing I think a parent can do is to let their child know underneath it all that they trust that their child has good instincts is heading in in the right directions and is competent and resilient. I hang on those words for dear life because I I think at the end of the day when our children are 17 or 18 or 22 or 24, if they move out of our house and they go on to their next adventure and we can say that person is competent and resilient, they're capable and they know it and they can handle a difficulty if it's thrown their way and they know that, I'd say that's a pretty solid parenting win. So if that's the vibe that we present to our kids, that I'm not sure that this test is going to go well, but I know on the whole, you're, you're on the right track and I have faith in you that things are going to work out, you know, and I think that's a vibe that parents can give their kids pretty readily. I also think it's a vibe that you can extract pretty readily. You know, I think the more we try to clamp down and control our kids, whether that, that is you know, show me your homework. Um, I'm going to track you on the portals. I'm going to reach out to your teachers. I'm going to uh, track your phone when you go out. Not that I'm against that altogether, but I think that can be disempowering at times. 
Um, anything that tells our kids, I don't know if you've got this. So I'm going to be a manager here. I'm going to be the general contractor and I'll be controlling your life behind the scenes. Uh, I'll be texting and, and emailing your teachers or your coaches and I will be right next to you at the job interview so that you never really feel empowered to do anything on your own. And then when that child leaves the house at 17, 18, 19, or 20, that child might have difficulty. I work with a frightening number of college freshmen who are back on my couch by um, Thanksgiving or even uh, Halloween wondering like, how did I dysregulate so readily? How, why did I stop going to class? Why did I start drinking so much? And a lot of it that has to do with never having um, been responsible and accountable for their lives ever before in the past. And then suddenly they're thrust into this new environment and they cannot manage it. Yeah, I was really shocked. You know, I think one of the statistics you mentioned in the book is that around 30% of freshmen don't go past the first semester. Is that, yeah. was, that was really surprising to me and daunting. You know, I think so many of us think, oh gosh, all right, we just need to get them to launch and then, you know, we'll be home free, but that's not really the case. No, I'm, I, 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 I would love to say it is, but um, lo- launching, I think, is, has changed over the past of, well, I'll, I'll say the past eight years. I, I would argue that, you know, I, I think a lot of us would say eight, 10 years ago, if we get our kid to the 18th birthday, you know, and we drop them off at, you know, whatever college it is or whatever apartment it is, we've done our jobs. We can wash our hands and say, Hey, we just won parenting. Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant of us. Um, now, you know, our, our kids are dependent on us financially for, for a longer period of time. I think it is much more difficult to manage those challenges of adolescence in a timely way between 13 and 19. So I think that takes longer. And a lot of kids do have this, this empathy and this worldview where they want to make some impact and so they may find themselves, even with a degree in their hands, thinking, I don't think I'm going to make any impact with this, or I don't think I'm going to make any, enough money to take care of myself with this. So I still need help, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. um, parenting is becoming, uh, if not a life sentence, certainly a longer sentence than I think we were led to believe when we had kids <laughs> in the first place. So for those of you who are listening for some reason who don't have children, this is a cautionary tale for you. But, um <laughs> So I want to go back to something you said before. I really love the language of really expressing to your child and making sure they know we believe that they are resilient and competent. And it, you know, it reminds me of the language that Ned Johnson and Bill Sticksrude write about in their book, The Self-Driven Child. You know, I trust you to make your own decisions and to learn from your mistakes. It's very much letting them know that you believe in them. So what if there are parents listening to this who want to say those words, but they don't believe they're true? What do, what do parents need to do to, what kind of work do they need to do on themselves? Or how do they get to a point where they can say that? And, and so that they're not continuously sending the message that they don't think their kids are going to get there. Well, I, lo- I love your, your initial thought. What, what is the work they need to do on themselves? So um, sometimes we are, uh, all of us, blind to what is driving us and what impact our behavior is having on the people around us. So um, 
I've worked with and known many parents, and I've been the parent at times that felt a need to be needed in a certain way in the life of my child, you know, or in the life of our children. And so we may unwittingly at times create a sense of disempowerment or uh, a lack of ability in our kids. I talk a lot about the vibe we set in our home and the messages we give our kids about themselves. And sometimes it is a handy feeling for a parent to have to feel I'm necessary. My, my child, this particular child just doesn't have the internal strength or the wherewithal to make it in the world on his or her own. So I'm necessary here. I'm going to be necessary in their lives for a very long time. And we create unwittingly, I think sometimes, and unconsciously a role for ourselves over the long term where we're not necessarily considering like, maybe I should redefine what my role is in the life of my child and consider what my life is about, as opposed to just saying, I'm just about being a parent. And so I'm going to create the circumstances where that stretches almost ad nauseum into the future. I think it's important to recognize, you know, what drives you and what role you play. The other thing is, if I hope that makes sense. Mm-hmm. The other thing is to step back and really attend to your child's capacity to do things on his or her own. Capacity is different than action. I, I, I feel it's important to point that out because a lot of parents will say to me, there is no capacity. They'll, they, they wouldn't write the teachers if I didn't. But I always encourage parents like, okay, but they might do something. Why don't you take a step back? You know, while they're in the comfort of your home and the risks are relatively low, they're not off at college, they're not on their own yet. Let's test out like how capable, competent, resilient they can be. Let's say they get themselves into an academic hole. Let's see if they can find their way out of that. And you can make yourself available as a guide and a consultant and an ally in every way, but they're the contractors. They're the ones who have to figure it out. Let's see what they can do and let's give them the opportunity at the very least to try. And if they decide I'm going to opt out altogether, let's give them the opportunity. And this is hard for parents. I recognize this to fail and to see what that's like and to see what they do in the wake of failure. And um, and sometimes that's I think most of us have needed that moment where it was like, oh, this went so much worse than I thought. I'm not going to let this happen again. This the, That feeling of, boy, that went poorly and that's on me. I, we only need that once or twice in life, I think, in order to hold ourselves more accountable the next time. Because if we allow our kids that feeling, then we will support that depth of recognition that, oh, yeah, this is on me. I have agency over this. I created this issue for myself. And I think next time it comes up, I can do something about it. I can mitigate it. There's power in that too. So there's even power in the loss or the failure if we're willing to allow our kids to experience that. And I think more and more parents are reluctant about that because because of our own fears. Yeah. And for, you know, the parents listening to this podcast whose kids are differently wired and so they, I guess... In, in thinking about the context of this question, too, it's also about recognizing, you know, where they are versus, you know, compared to their same age peers. So y- you can still practice this 
and giving them seeing where their capacity is, even with the scaffolding that you might have in place and doing that removal of the scaffolding in a way that that is appropriate for for wherever they are, right? I love that. I, I, and I'm really glad you brought up uh, parents for kids who are differently wired. Right. It might feel like this metric might not apply to my children, but I think if you can adapt that a little bit, I think it absolutely does, you know, and um, and there is no child who can't find some degree of competence in, in what they can do. And the mistake or the misjudgment we make sometimes is we place unnecessary limitations on our kids and they are sometimes capable of things that we that would really, really surprise us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great reminder. So um, just two more questions. One is, you know, you talk about the vibe uh, in the home. And that's something I talk a lot about too at Tilt Parenting is, you know, the importance of creating a secure world for your child at home. So can you kind of explain what you mean by the vibe in the home and what we should be going for and, you know, maybe a tip or two on how we can create that ideal vibe? Absolutely. So if you consider your child's world today, picture their day at school, you know, if they're, if this is a weekday, picture your day, their day at school right now. There is a, a lot of noise socially, academically. There's insecurities that they're carrying around. They're in their minds, there is noise. It is loud. Kids describe this to me every single day, literally, Debbie. And so at home, especially as they walk through the door, they need to experience some sense of sanctuary. There needs to be some peace and some feeling that somebody is there for me unconditionally, no matter how today went whether I want to talk to them in depth about it or whether I don't want to say a word about it, I need that time to kind of regroup because there's more I have to do today. Um, I might have a job to go to. I have homework to do. I might have a, a play practice or, or swim you know, practice or something else I have to do. So I need a little bit of a reprieve. And, and I think moms and dads more than anybody can be that sanctuary for them. And, and now it's so critical because kids have precious little time in their lives where it's silent. They have very little time in their lives where they have the luxury of a little bit of regression. So I'm talking about kids as young as seven or eight or nine or 10 being aware of everything that's going on in the world, all their insecurities internally. So everything external and internal, they're kind of hyper aware of overwhelmed by. And if you can just imagine how important, crucial sanctuary is to the establishment of well-being and the idea of self-regulation, like emotional self-regulation, you're kind of introducing that idea when you create a vibe in the house that is calm as opposed to having a television on or having conflict the minute a child walks through the door which just is more noise, you know what I mean? And more noise. And we want to give them at least some time during the day where they're allowed, for lack of a better word, to regress a bit, to step back, to be young and innocent and off the grid for a little while, even if it's just 20 minutes, that is refueling, rejuvenating and regulating in a way that 
I don't think anything else could possibly be. It is so important to the well-being of kids today. I cannot emphasize it enough. And kids share with me that too often they step through the threshold of their home and it doesn't feel safe and it doesn't feel comfortable and it does feel like an interrogation. It does feel like more of the same and their inclination is I'm going to go up to my room, put earbuds in and create more noise. And then so they're never really in touch kind of with themselves, you know, emotionally, psychologically, and they're not regulating very well at all. Wow. Thank you for that. It's a good reminder. And, you know, even one of the tips you had in the book is just to have like soft music playing in the home. Like I think there are really simple ways to create you know, just the other day we came home from school and I was like, well, I'm getting into pajamas now. I don't know about you, you know, and that can instantly change the energy (laughs) in the home. Briefly, I work, I work with a boy, 17 year old boy, tough kid, um, multi-sport athlete, uh, guy's guy all the way in his room is a weighted blanket, scented candles, essential oils, and the calm app on virtually all the time. And this is like brilliant self-regulation. And um, uh, recently he described to me three other football players coming into his room. And he's like, oh no, I'm going to get mocked so brutally for this. And they're all like, where where did you get the weighted blanket, man? This is great. (laughs) (laughs) So he was like, everybody wanted a piece of whatever piece he's found. It was really (laughs) lovely and profound. That's great. That's great. Well, before we go, um, you you have so much experience and a lot of wisdom to share. So I'm just wondering if you have any last parting words of advice for parents who are listening and this conversation is is really resonating with them and and they want to make a change in the culture of their family. What what yeah. would that be? It, it would be um, if, if you listen to just our, our discussion here, you'll find that it is never too late to make a change, no matter how frayed or damaged you feel like your relationship is with your child. Uh, you can always reset in a, in a meta way. Your child wants you and needs you in his or her life regardless of what they say. 99% of the time, I trust the kids are telling the truth. What they say, I hate you, I want nothing to do with you, get away from me, do not believe them. (laughs) They want you and need you in their lives. The other thing is to be gentle with yourself. This is a really interesting time to raise kids because you are raising a generation that is kind and sensitive and empathic and deep. They're also overwhelmed um, anxious, depressed, and taxed. So if you can be a conduit for them navigating this space successfully and as happily as they can, you, you are doing amazing work as a parent. Um, so uh, be, be gentle with yourself and give yourself credit for what you are doing super well and know that you can make adjustments for anything that you feel like, "Mm, I can make a little movement here, but don't be too tough on yourself. Be gentle with it and be gentle with your children. Thank you so much. That's just wonderful note to end this on. And so listeners, the book is parenting the new teenage in the age of anxiety, and I will have links on the show notes page. And John, is there anywhere on social media that you're particularly active that listeners can check in with you on? 
Yeah. Um, so uh, my, my website uh, will we'll show all my social media and stuff. My website is drjohnduffy.com. I'm Dr. John Duffy on Facebook, at Dr. John Duffy on Instagram and Twitter. Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, really happy to be able to share this conversation. We could have talked for hours. So I look oh, forward to actually <laughs> following your your media tour for this book too, and, and listening to what other interviews um, touch upon, because there's a lot of great stuff in the book. Well, thank you, Debbie. It's been absolutely a, a delight to talk with you. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, visit tiltparenting.com slash podcast and search for this conversation. If you like what you heard on today's episode, I would be grateful if you could take a minute to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a review. Thank you so much for helping us stay visible so people who would benefit from the show can easily find it. If you want to support the show and help me cover the cost of production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. To support the show, just visit patreon.com slash Tilt Parenting. Lastly, if you aren't already part of the online community at Tilt, I invite you to sign up at tiltparenting.com on the box in the bottom where it says join the revolution. Every Thursday, I send out a short email with a quick note from me, a link to that week's podcast episode, and links to five stories from the news that week that are relevant to parents like us. Again, you can sign up and learn more about Tilt at www.tiltparenting.com. Well, hey there, busy mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wannabe Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it. But I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free.